At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, May 1st, 2023 edition, and it's a new week. And we are still in the midst of earning season. And we embark as well on Fed week. We have the Federal Reserve meeting on Wednesday. And that's certainly going to move markets, not necessarily based on what they do on Wednesday, but what they say on Wednesday. And we're going to look at uh, that impact uh, as well as what's happening in the broader economy and for individual companies. And to be driven by your questions, your concerns, your your topics that you bring to me, that's what's most important here. I can give you my perspective of over 20 plus years of investment experience, but ultimately it's about what's on your mind. Uh, you probably thought of some things over the weekend. Maybe you had a conversation with a, a cousin or a friend or a brother or, or a sibling, whatever it is that's on your mind, don't hesitate. That's what this show is all about. It's uh, unpacking your your thoughts and trying to give you the pros and cons of every asset class, uh, class, every company, so that you can make the right decision for you. And so, this show is about you, become, you becoming a better investor, a successful investor. And our phone lines are open at eight 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 ninety nine chart. You can call anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or if you're listening live during our live stream show, you can call then as well and talk to me directly. Now, I have a lot of material to cover on today's podcast, and the main focus point is going to be what one more Fed rate hike could mean for you. How will this impact different rates and ultimately your personal financial situation. In some ways, it may be better. In some ways, it may be worse. We're going to look at that. Also, like I said at the top of the show, we are in the midst of earnings season. And seventy-seven, about 90 companies have reported out of the S&P 500, so not a whole lot. But it's always good to, it's, it's a decent sample size, right? So it's always good to kind of take a look at that and see where we are at. All right. I also want to touch on the dollar. A lot of people have talked about de-dollarization and how dollars going to lose its reserve currency. And I kind of given you my distillation of what my long-term view on the dollar is and global reserve currency. Basically, eventually, probably a decade plus down the line, it'll be <clears throat> it'll be switched out for something like a bank or. But in the near term, and this is important if you have investments in 
companies in foreign markets that operate in foreign markets. In the near term, the dollar, based on various metrics, looks a bit overvalued. So we're going to look at that data point. And then lastly, if we have time, we're going to look at the fiscal deficit, the fiscal deficit and what the first half of this year is looking like. All right. So that's ultimately what's on my mind, but that matters a lot less than what's on your mind. So give me a call. We also have some voice bank questions ready to play. One is on Boise Cascade. The other is on World Wrestling Entertainment. And I think I have an iTunes review question to answer on top of that. My perspective today also centers around two trending financial topics, U.S. debt and inflation. So I hope, hopefully I have time to fit that in. So give me a call now. We're taking your live calls at 888-989-CHART. <clears throat> Let's take a look at the market today. Now, over the weekend, FRC, First Republic, it went into receivership. And a lot of people would say, oh, well, that's I mean the market's going to be down big on Monday. Well, it was down a little bit on the open of the, uh, of the futures last night, but we opened positive on, on the day today and we closed about flat. So really FRC, is it newsworthy? Absolutely. Is it likely to have a major impact on credit availability in the economy? Probably not, right? It looks like JP Morgan's going to be uh, picking up these assets and ultimately, that probably just means a bigger and more profitable J.P. Morgan. Okay. And you saw that up uh, decent today. So overall, it's still a wait and see on the Fed. That trumps everything to do with what's happening with those small and medium-sized banks. All right. Now, let's pivot to our first listener question now. Hello, Invest Talk. My name is uh, Brian. I'm calling from Ohio. I was wondering if you could go over the stock Western Union, WU. I always like to uh, listen to the program. Thanks. All right, looking at Western Union, and this is a company that has been in decline, but not as much decline as you know the stock price is showing. All uh, right, supposed to make a dollar fifty-eight this year, dollar sixty-four next year. It's a $10 stock. So you're talking about trading at a six multiple, seven multiple. So very cheap. It has, let's see, enterprise value to EBITDA right on four. Uh, I, I think it's definitely undervalued. Right, it's free cash flow is $373 million. It has nearly a 10% free cash flow yield. And it's taking that cash flow and it's buying back shares. And so eventually it's going to be able to buy back all of the shares. Um, but that's really what you're, you're dealing with here. It's a very cheap company, but you have to understand their business is dying. So how slow will that ice cube melt? And I think it's been slower than the market is, uh, is really pricing it. So I do think it's undervalued. Now, technically, it's still you know, struggling, um, but definitely cheap long term and does pay an 8% dividend yield eventually that'll probably be cut. So I wouldn't be buying it based on that. And you can see that based on the fact that their dividend rate has paused, right? It hasn't been raised since uh, middle of 2021. So it is cheap, but understand it is a melting ice cube. And your bet here is that it will melt slower than the market is expecting. And I think 
That's a good bet. Now we're going into a quick break. And please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening via the live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Bay Area, you can call now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. Here. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to John in the Bay Area talking about rental properties. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Um, I heard Steve last week talk about renting versus buying, and I purchased a property about 10 months ago um, through a brokerage which um, gives you a below market interest rate. My lender is Bank of America, and they said after 12 months I could rent out the property. However, the broker's contingency is that it has to be owner-occupied. I was wondering if I rent it out, will the lender contact the broker to not let them know I'm renting out the property? It's unlikely, to be honest. Okay. It's unlikely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, they just want it. They want to make sure that you're paying the mortgage. That's ultimately what what they want, um, and so will they will they tell them? Maybe, and maybe they won't, and, and most likely they wouldn't do anything even if they did tell them. Um, but I think both are are unlikely, so I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um, so it so sounds like you're living there right now, and then you're you're going to turn into a rental. I'm hoping to because I, I don't really like living here that much, but I'm just. A bit nervous because I did find some paperwork saying that if the brokerage finds out that I'm renting it, there's a twenty-five thousand dollars fine and an automatic foreclosure. <laughs> so I don't uh, want I don't want to do anything that causes me issues in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I, then I would I would definitely consult with more of a real estate attorney uh, with that, uh, and then look at that verbiage and make sure you you don't get hit with that. Um, but you know, that's a, it's a good lesson uh, to everyone out there it, when you're committing to a property. You, you know, you you want to make sure you really love it, um, especially in an environment like this. Uh, did you move from a different area, or is this something that uh, you lived there for a while, lived in that area for a while? Uh, well, I lived. I, I called you guys about this past a few months ago, but I lived in the East Bay area, and I mm -hmm. moved to Solano County in Vallejo, and I don't really like living here. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't, I don't really want to hang on to the place. So I'm just trying to see what my options are. Well, you can always sell it. Yeah, I could, but then I would take a loss. But I think I'd I'd be better off selling it if I can't rent it out. 
because I don't, yeah. I wouldn't want to live here too much longer. Got it. Okay. Well, good luck. Yeah. yeah, I would talk to a real estate lawyer and have them look over those uh, those stipulations and and advise you because obviously I don't know enough about it to really give you uh, the perfect advice. But I would definitely consult a professional. Thanks for the call. Okay. And that's that's a it's a great lesson there. And this is what I've been saying for really the past two three years uh, for our listeners, clients, and saying, you know, when you're going to buy a property, buy a property. It's, and this is, I think this is going to be for the next 10, 20, 30 years. You know, we talked about interest rates being in a 30 year up and down cycle. It's typically how interest rates move 30 years up, 30 years down. This recent cycle is a little bit longer. It was exaggerated closer to, uh, you know, 35 years from the peak, uh, and back in, you know, 82. And so, you're now in an environment where interest rates are going up. And that means something very different for owning a property. It means that if you're, you're not guaranteed price appreciation anymore because you're not going to have interest rates consistently moving down to inflate the value of properties. That's just not a scenario that's likely to play out going forward. Our interest rates going to go, you know, the mortgage rates were, let's call them 20% in the early 80s. And then they went all the way to 3%. Are we going to go to negative, what would that be? What would that delta be? Negative uh, 14% over the next 30 years in mortgage rates? Probably not, right? So best case scenario, mortgage rates are going to fluctuate between 5 and 7% for a long t- time. I think it's best case. Worst case, you get you know mortgage rates back into the you know low teens. And probably not happening anytime soon, but could that happen 15 years from now? Sure. So when you're committing to a property, it's, it's a big commitment and you need to make sure all the boxes are checked. I said this consistently, all the boxes, because you don't want to be like that caller, like John and saying, oh, well, now I'm upset on the property and now I, do I rent it? Can I rent it? Should I rent it? No, the easiest thing is be patient. It's an environment where. Unless you love it, wait, I just bought a house, right? I love it. I love it. I don't really care whether the price of the property goes up a little, down a little, don't care. I'm going to live here for a long time. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't worry about it, but for somebody else, for all of you out there, if you're going to buy a house, your own personal property. You need to make sure that it checks all the boxes. And then when it comes to owning a rental property, right, you need to make sure that your yield is much higher than your cost of capital, the cost of the, the mortgage on that property, at least by 100 basis points. And then you need to know the surrounding economy is going to do fairly well. You need to have, you need to really have all your numbers dialed in. Especially when you can go get CDs at four four and a half percent or go buy corporate bonds at seven percent right much better alternatives today than there have been in the past especially for uh your cash and the value you have stuck in rentals now we're moving into a break i'm ready for your questions invest talk is 888.99 chart that's how you get through and ask your question on today's show
One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, my focus point looks in the story behind this headline. What one more Fed rate hike could mean for you. And like I've said at the top of the show, this is Fed week, and we're likely to get a quarter point increase in the Fed funds rate all the way to 4.75 to 5, I believe is the, the, the range. And all of this fiscal tightening, fiscal monetary tightening, I always get those two flip-flopped in my mind briefly, but monetary tightening is cooling inflation. And higher prices are causing real wages to decline. So real average hourly earnings are down 0.7% from a year earlier. So incomes are not keeping up with inflation. And ultimately, that makes it harder for people to afford their lives. And you can see that in the numbers for credit cards and credit card borrowing. So credit uh, uh and this is in the midst of you know, higher interest rates, the higher cost of credit. So people are leaning on credit more and it's costing them more. The average credit card rate is now more than 20% on average. And nearly half of credit card holders carry debt from month to month. Obviously, you shouldn't be one of those. You know, We don't talk a lot about personal finance on this show. I wish we probably should do it more. Sometimes I think it's maybe not as interesting to, to people. It's probably why you don't talk about it enough. Um, but it's the foundation. It's the foundation of anyone's financial life is making good personal finance finance decisions, right? Spending less than you earn. It's that simple. Okay. And for most people, they're not, right? They're carrying credit card balances and paying high interest. So if the Fed raises rates, guess what? That interest rate is going to go up probably over the next billing cycle or two. Now on the mortgage side, the average 30-year fixed mortgage is now up to about 6.48%. That's down slightly from November's high, but still much higher than it was a year ago. And now, now this shift probably won't matter much to mortgage rates, at least in the, the, them raising rates uh, in and of themselves. That's priced into markets. It's really about what they say going forward and what expectations, how expectations will shift. And that will ultimately move the treasury market, the 10-year treasury market, which is the proxy for those 15 and 30-year mortgages. Now, if you have a home equity line of credit or an adjustable rate mortgage, this will impact you because it is pegged, those are pegged to prime rates and prime rates do rise and fall when the Fed funds rate moves. And most adjustable mortgages adjust once a year, but HELOCs adjust right away. And the average HELOC is up to about 8%. Okay, so if you have a HELOC, you're going to be charged more interest. Now, on student loans, most borrowers aren't really affected because their rate's fixed. But if you're taking it out in this, this academic year, the rate's up to about 5%. But any loan dispersed after July 1st will likely be even higher. Okay, so understand it's not about this academic year, but if you have a child 
uh, a, a family member, let's just say that, that is going into another school year and they're taking loans out that's going to be at a higher rate next school year. And that's, once again, uh, linked to the 10-year Treasury note. Now, Treasury bill rates, uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry, the deposit rates, excuse me, deposit rates are also likely to go up a bit as well. Now, the average savings account only yields 0.39%, but high yield online savings accounts are at about 4.5%, some of them, and that could go up uh, a bit. Now, this is likely the last increase for a while. That's really the expectation here is that the Fed's going to hike one more time to get to that 5% range, and they're going to pause. And now the market expects rate cuts by the end of the year. But in the meantime, those short-term rates are likely to remain uh, pretty elevated, four and a half, four and three quarters, I think you can get up to. Okay. And if you haven't benefited from these higher rates, then you should probably look elsewhere with your cash and try to get some of that invested. So that's a quick overview. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Karen Singh says, I love your show and listen to it religiously. I have a question about investing in GM for 5% of my portfolio. This stock is trading less than its book value, and it looks like there are projections for the next year are good. Not sure how the economic environment is going to affect it, though. Well, <clears throat> here's the issue. I just don't love car companies. Auto companies are some of the worst businesses in the world. They're highly capital intensive, right? Highly capital intensive, huge factories, lots of inventory. You're, you're dealing with unions, especially if you're producing here. They're just not great businesses and they're very cyclical. And then if you look at the, the chart, doesn't doesn't inspire confidence. Let's just say that. Okay, so I would look elsewhere. GM is just not near near the top of my list of industrial names that I would own. You want to look for something probably a bit smaller, uh, less capital intensive. That is uh, that is not not an industry that is so competitive, right? The auto industry is extremely competitive. So I'm going to give no uh, give a no to GM. All right. Now coming up soon, my fresh perspective report in the centers on two connected financial topics: U.S. debt and inflation. But for now, I'm moving into a break and I'm ready for your questions on Invest Talk at 888 chart At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. 
HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Hey, Justin and Steve, this is Jay from New York. I had a quick question. I have a small position on a stock. It's a WWE, uh, William William Executives. And essentially, I'm thinking about selling right now. It's a, I've had it for uh, over a year now, and I, it's about to, I think it's the best time to sell because right now there, there's talks about being bought out by UFC. And I'm thinking maybe I'll get back into it once the price falls. Please let me know what you think. Thank you. All right. Looking at WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, I have heard a bit of rumors about that Yeah, being bought out by UFC. The current market cap is about $8 billion, but it's trading at pretty high valuation. You're talking about 20 times enterprise value to EBITDA, 7.5 times price to sales ratio. The good thing is they don't have any debt on their balance sheet. That's a positive. And they're very profitable. Uh, but you know, you're talking about free cash flow only 125 million. I just think the the multiples here are are, are way too high. Forward looking earnings multiple is somewhere in the high 30s. Uh, that's just way too too rich for my blood. Especially if you look at last quarter's earnings. Uh, earnings were down 22 percent. Revenues were only up five percent. And, you know, demographics for wrestling are, are not fantastic, right? Do you have our society's old, aging uh, and there isn't a huge cohort of younger people to, you know, get engaged with, uh, with wrestling. So I, I'm just not a fan of it. Uh, I think you're, you've had this huge run up uh, and multiples that I think are just uh, edging or bordering on the edge of egregious. So absolutely, uh, maybe look out for that one-year mark. Make sure you get long-term capital gains if it's in a taxable account. But I definitely would be looking to trim or sell it. All right. Thanks for the call. Now, my perspective today centers on the two trending financial topics, U.S. debt and inflation. Both are complex and nuanced. There's a lot of gray area here. A lot of people use hyperbole. But I think it would be good to do a simplistic overview and go back in history. Now, keep in mind, I'll be using round number estimates, so not obviously exact, but a brief definition of U.S. debt, the national debt of the United States, the total national debt owed by the federal government of the United States to Treasury security holders. So the national debt at any point in time is the face value of the then outstanding Treasury securities that have been issued by the Treasury and other federal agencies. Now, historically, the U.S. public debt as a share of GDP increases during wars and recessions and then subsequently 
declines, except for as of late, obviously. Now, the ratio of debt to GDP may increase as a result of a government surplus or via growth of GDP and inflation. So America has been in debt since the Revolutionary War. So that's nothing new. And usually there's three reasons for a run-up in debt. One is running large na nation is expensive, right? We're, we're very spread out and very diverse. And it's expensive to administer government government programs throughout the nation. Second, we fight wars. Wars are expensive. And third, most notably in the beginning, the early U.S. government didn't have the power to tax its citizens until a little over 100 years ago. The U.S. federal debt has increased from approximately $408 billion when adjusted for inflation in 1922 to $31.5 trillion in February of this year. Now, the country's total debt-to-GDP ratio is, is high. And the last time it was, that's time we had some sort of major economic event. It was 1929 and on the heels of the Great Depression. And back then, total U.S. debt outstanding was 16 billion, 931 million. But inflation has been 1,665% since then. So in today's dollars, some around $282 billion, which is pretty low. So the GDP, low in, in comparison to the GDP back then, GDP in 1929 is $1.1 trillion. So it was only about 33%. Debt-to-GDP ratio. Now, in modern times, we have over 100% debt-to-GDP ratio. And about 33% of this debt is owed to foreign, foreign buyers of our debt. So that's where we are today. But post-World War II, we were in a very similar situation. And that was one reason we could get into World War II is because we actually had a pretty healthy balance sheet going into uh, World War II. Until we spent a bunch of money on the war, and then suddenly we had a lot of debt. And then they inflated away the debt through the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and then the 70s. So this is not a new situation, but you have to look at history to understand how are we going to deal with this situation. The last time we were in this situation, what did we do? We inflated away the debt. You keep the cost of borrowing low. Back then, they did yield curve inversion, yield curve control, very similar to what Japan is doing today. And then we spend money on a lot of public works projects. Does it seem like we might be going down that path? In my mind, I do. Now let's grab another voice bank question from eight 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 ninety nine chart. Hi, good day, Stephen Justin. I uh, love the show. Long time listener here. I have a quick question for you, gentlemen. I'm looking at the stock, um, I believe the ticker symbol is BCC, Boise Cascade. Uh, works with lumber and home building and so forth. Looks like a solid stock. 
um, pays it a little dividend, I believe. And I'm wondering about adding this to my portfolio. I don't have much in building at all, but I'm wondering if this would be a bad time to add this to my portfolio with house building and so forth, if it's too volatile. Please let me know what you think of this company, if I should add it, or maybe I should keep looking for something different. Thank you for everything you guys do. Please have a great day. All right, looking at Boise Cascade, and they manufacture wood products and distribute that. And obviously, they're tied to the building industry. It has two segments, wood products and building materials, distribution. So wood product segment manufactures laminate veneer, lumber, joists, and laminate beams. And then the building materials distribution segment wholesales a lot of different building material. So very tied to the housing market and, and housing activity. Now the positive for, here's a big positive for this sector as a whole. Uh, and, you know, we've been long uh, a home builder, our favorite home builder for a while. And a lot of people will say, well, interest going up and the housing market's terrible. You have to understand the dynamics and the fact that everybody, not everybody, the most homeowners are now rate locked. The new supply of homes are coming from exist uh, from the new home builders, not existing home build ho- homeowners, right? So, building activity is still pretty decent. Now, Boise Cascades earnings are coming down, so you don't want to be looking backwards. The last two years, they crushed it. They made nearly eighteen dollars per share in twenty twenty one, twenty one fifty last year, but this year it's supposed to make seven dollars per share. So certainly slowing down. And a big part of this, I think, is just remodels, building, uh, you know, uh, home filled flippers, buying land, building spec homes on, uh, on vacant lots, things like that. That's gone, right? That's not happening. People aren't borrowing. The cost of capital is just too high for that type of activity. But they supply to home builders and they're still doing, you know, relatively fine. <clears throat> and so... Looking forward, they're supposed to make seven dollars this year, about seven dollars next year. Analysts don't really probably know where this is going to level out at. If they continue to make seven dollars per year, it's pretty cheap stock. Okay, and long term, if you look at the profitability, long term it tends to have a much lower profitability metric, right? In the low to mid teens, on average, return on equity now it's at forty eight percent, and that's from a high of sixty six percent. So definitely reversion to the mean happening right now. And the big question is, where is that mean? Is it back to the two to $3 level it was earning pre-pandemic or is it closer to $7? Like analysts are expecting this year or next year. So that's the question you have to really ask yourself. Now, if you look at the chart, the chart's kind of neutral to slightly bearish, right? It's make, still making over the, on a weekly chart, a series of lower highs and lower lows. It's not a strong downtrend, but it's a, it's a modest downtrend since those highs. And I think it's the market still trying to figure out where, where is the reversion of the mean. So <clears throat> I don't love, love it. I don't like that long-term profitability picture and the fact that there's, once again, likely a continuation of reversion to, my guess is closer to 2 or $3 longer term. And that makes it expensive. So I'm passing on Boise Cascade because I just don't have a ton of clarity of what that longer term profitability picture will look like. All right. Thanks for the call. 
We also touch on earnings. We're in the midst of earnings season. And we have about 90 S&P 500 companies that have reported earnings, but 77% of them have beat earnings expectations. And this is a much higher beat percentage than the previous three quarters. So, so far, so good. Now, the question I think everyone has to ask themselves is, is this because analysts are too pessimistic? Right? Basically saying, oh, the fallout from uh, the banking crisis, all this is going to feed into more of a, a stronger economic decline. And the reality is so far that hasn't come to fruition. And another overlooked aspect of this is that the earnings recession that this is basically marking, right? It's two quarters in a row. That's a recession. It's two negative quarters in a row. We have a negative quarter in the fourth quarter. We have a negative quarter this quarter. But if you strip out energy, that was actually keeping earnings for the second and third quarter last year positive. But if you strip that out, earnings have been contracting now since the second quarter of last year. So four quarters in a row. So does that mean we are actually nearing the bottom in the earnings cycle? It's rare to have an entire year where earnings are contracting. And so the fact that we, the worst of the financial contagion fears definitely haven't materialized. Even in financial stocks, earnings are expected to be up about 7.6%. And the top three, JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Citi, they're beating expectations handily. And operating margins look to be going up. One of the big reasons we've had basically four quarters in a row of negative earnings year over year is the fact that labor costs have been going up. Input costs, and they've been having a tough time passing that on to the consumer. But those pressures look to be easing, right? Inflation's come down. And so peak margin pressure was probably fourth quarter of last year. And so, so far, a dire earnings picture just hasn't come to fruition. Now, that could change. Once again, this is only roughly 20% of the S&P that's reported so far. And we'll certainly report on more of it. But it's important to have that perspective. Okay, that, hey, you can talk about all the headlines. You can spin as much as many narratives as you want. But the reality is earnings have still held up. And I, I still go back to the fact that this is an inflationary recession. An inflationary recession is different than a deflationary recession. So many people have been used to that. So no way it was. It was a deflationary recession. What we're maybe in, maybe entering, is a modest inflationary recession. Not the end of the world. Now let's pivot back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a call that came in earlier from New York. Hi, this is Yanko from New York. Uh, quick question. I'm continuously trying to sell some tech positions, and recently with the earnings, it seems like tech is doing pretty good. 
So my question to you is like, how do I take advantage of that wave? I'm looking at Apple, A-A-P-L. Uh, I've held it for a while. It's obviously doing very good. And if I'm looking at all the moving day averages, it seems like that uh, where it's heading is above the 50, above the 100, and above the 200. I remember a couple of podcasts ago, uh, Justin was talking about that if the moving day averages are wider, that's like a good sign rather than it coming closer. So I guess the follow-up question is, how can you really tell whether or not it's good to take some profit off the table too, especially for the tech stocks that I'm just trying to slowly minimize my position in at this time of the economy. Thank you very much and have a good day. Bye. All right. Great question. I like your point on the moving averages, but you know, Apple, it's kind of in a choppy period and a lot of these tech stocks uh, are, uh, and, and this is actually bucking the, the broader uh, tech stock trend. Uh, it is up into resistance. I will say that here around 170. Uh, but if it consolidates up here, then you're right. It is just moving higher into a more concerted uptrend. Um, that's certainly possible. Uh, but this is an area that you do want to think about trimming if you are going to trim. All right. Thanks for the call. We're heading into a break. I'm ready to take your questions now at 888-99-CHART. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. We're going to talk to Nick. He's in Manhattan Beach. He wants to talk about Tyson Foods TSN. Do you own it or looking to buy it? I'm looking to buy it, Justin. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, just pretty simple. It's towards the low end of its trading range over the past seven to eight years. Um, I think the dividend is safe. It's obviously one of the premier suppliers by market share of, of meat in America, and we all like meat, whether it's pork or beef or chicken or whatnot. Uh, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. Um, as I said, the stock looks cheap and the dividend's safe. I was just thinking, what do you, what do you think is a good price to buy it at? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. You know, technically it is at the low end of its uh, longer term trading range uh, on the chart as well as fundamentally. I don't think it's going to knock your socks off, right? But if it can mean revert back into the mid 80s, I think that would be a nice return here from uh, 62 plus you get that 3% dividend. Like you said, I don't think it's uh, it's going anywhere. It's operations, cash from operations is uh, relatively steady. It has uh, come down a little bit recently. Uh, but a lot of that probably has to do with the input costs uh, for its, you know, uh, for its operations. But you know, with potentially unemployment rising, you know, they're going to have a uh, opportunity to uh, probably expand margins. Uh, maybe not have to pay their employees quite as much. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give this one a, a thumbs up. I do think uh, they're at the low end of the range and their their business prospects near term, uh, and they will improve. So. Uh, I, I, I give it a thumbs up. Thanks for the call. All right. I agree, I agree with everything. Thank you. Thank you. Now, lastly, I want to touch on the dollar. And while the main topic of discussion of the day is when will the dollar lose its reserve currency, but I, I like to focus more on you know what is more immediate term. And so far, since the peak in September, the dollar's down about 8.6%, starting its worst year since 2018. And so 
There are many factors. One is obviously the banking system problems, potential defaulting on U.S. debt, and maybe a recession, an inflationary recession, but a recession nonetheless maybe later this year. And it looks like the Fed is going to be one and done this week. And the U.S., in a performance basis, has come out of a very strong period. And a lot of it had to do with the fiscal spending that's still pretty strong, but not obviously quite as strong as uh, immediately after COVID. And other countries are catching up. So the global economy is improving while the U.S. economy is weakening. Now, a weak dollar, you might sound like it's terrible a dollar's weak. Well, in reality, it's actually very good for the global economy. It boosts the value of overseas earnings of U.S. multinationals, and it typically boosts global trade because goods priced in dollars become more affordable. And so we can export more around the world. Now, 60% of global liabilities are denominated in dollars. Remember, I talked about this before. If you go pay, you have a mortgage, you have to pay your mortgage back in dollars. And what this means is 60% of all global, we call them, it's called them mortgages or liabilities of any kind are denominated in dollars. And so when the dollar goes down in value, it makes it easier to pay that back, especially if you're in an emerging market, which where there's a lot of economic activity, like a lot of economic growth. And so that's a positive. This is, this is actually a positive. Okay. Now, European growth is holding up better than expected. Why? Because the energy crisis didn't manifest as a lot of people were fearing. China's economy is expected to, or grew 4.5% in the first quarter. Better than expected. And that's right in line with what the IMF believes for this year. U.S. GDP expected to grow 1.1% this year. Eurozone GDP, 1.4%. And Chinese growth at about 4.5%. And a big factor that is underappreciated is the fact that European bond yields are positive. Remember when Europe had negative bond yields? What happened was there was a lot of capital flight out of that, saying, I don't want negative rates. I'm going I'm to push money into positive-yielding currencies, positive-yielding countries like the U.S., and now European rates are, are nicely positive and there's money flowing back there as well now that they can earn, you can earn something there. And so that means money likely coming out of, of the dollar, at least in the, you know, the medium term. All right. So all those factors make up for probably weaker dollar going forward. Yeah. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can get anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights for more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.
Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.